0: This morning, I want us to, to turn to the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, we're going to continue in the series that we started uh, just last week. We're, we're in the book of Acts chapter 9, and so I'll invite you to grab your Bible or the pew Bible that's, that's there, and you can turn to Acts chapter 9 as we prepare this morning to hear from the word of the Lord. Last week we began this brand new series and uh, we, we started to talk about this person that we find at the beginning of, of Acts 9, verse 1, whose name is Saul. And uh, unfortunately, if you weren't here last week, you, you, you kind of missed us setting up uh, a reintroduction of the narrative. We recapped Acts, Acts chapter one through eight, which we've covered in a series before called "He Is Worthy." Uh, it's on our YouTube channel if you want to go back and get all those those details. And if you missed last week, I, I gave a briefer summary. But but if you missed it, you, you missed it because Heather wasn't here to uh, catch it, and uh, I forgot to turn on the video recording before service last week. We have no recording of last week's message. So. Uh, if you were here, it's on you to share with somebody who wasn't here what we talked about. We talked about what has taken place in Acts chapters 1 to 8, and then we talked about the person of Saul, who we are looking at in this text in Acts chapter 9. So, so very briefly, I want to just remind you of who Saul is, the things you need to know about Saul as we begin to look at him again more closely this morning. Very briefly, this is who Saul is. Saul's a very young, intelligent, zealous, religious Jew. He's a member of the Pharisees, the strictest group of Jewish people that there is. And he's a man who hates the message of Jesus Christ so much that he began persecuting the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Very, very effective. He oversees the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and then he goes out and begins arresting others and, and see, overseeing their death. And the believers have to leave Jerusalem. Saul's so effective. They can't hide from him. They have to escape. And so they flee the city, and they're, they're going all kinds of different places. But Saul is not satisfied to just stop people around him from talking about Jesus. Saul hears that that some of those Christians have gone 135 miles away to a city called Damascus, and there they're still talking about Jesus. They didn't learn their lesson, Saul thinks. So Saul goes and travels 135 miles to find disciples of Jesus, arrest them so that he can end the message being preached there too. But on that road to Damascus, just outside the city, there's Saul on this mission to destroy anyone who thought that Jesus was God, anyone who believed he should be worshipped when Saul is confronted in an incredible way by a powerful revealing of Jesus himself who shows up as the true light and exposes the spiritual blindness in Saul. As I said last week, despite all of Saul's religious background, despite all his activities, despite all his zeal, all his external appearance, what was true of Saul was that he was spiritually blind and he did not really know the God who he said he was serving. And so the result of this dramatic encounter there is that Saul is spirit, exposed his spiritual blindness and then his physical blindness comes as he has seen Jesus and his whole world is turned down as he walks into Damascus not knowing anything For sure, anymore. This morning, as we turn to our second week in this series, the title of this message is A Story of Salvation. And we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 9, verse 9 this morning. Here's where we read Now, for three days, he, that is Saul, was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise, And go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So, for three entire days, the text tells us there in verse 9, the spiritual blindness of Saul is accompanied by physical blindness. And during these three days of complete blindness in the person of Saul, He doesn't eat or drink anything. He simply is thinking, processing through what it is he has just experienced. Everything he had seen in that bright light, everything he had heard as Jesus spoke to him from heaven, called him by name, spoke to him in a way that revealed he truly was God speaking from heaven. Not only had Saul been denying those things and not believing those things, he'd been trying to eradicate people who believed those things. And so when this encounter happens for three days, Saul simply sits and thinks, and prays, and processes. Saul's disbelief of the message that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the one who had died to save his people from their sins, that he had risen from the dead, he had ascended into heaven, and was sitting on the throne, ruling as God over all things, that disbelief in Saul was confronted and conquered by Jesus appearing to him and speaking to Saul on that dusty road. And Saul, as we think about this today, we recognize Saul has an amazing story of salvation. But every other follower of Christ does too. I want us to think about that this morning. Our stories are likely not nearly as dramatic in the process of how we came to be saved. But the outcome is nonetheless amazing in everyone who is saved. So again, let's, like, let's be honest, kind of think about this this morning. Um, none of our conversion stories are probably as powerful as Saul's, right? I don't think anyone in this room spent three days fasting and praying before they became a Christian. Pretty confident nobody was struck physically blind. Nobody heard an audible voice speaking from heaven, confusing those around you as you are called by name and hear clearly the voice of God speaking to you. That's probably not anybody's story in this room, right? But there was, for every true follower of Jesus... A moment, a period of time, a process that we went through of our own conversion, our own experience of being saved by this Lord. And the result of that salvation in our lives, a transformation that comes into the life of a person who is saved by God, no matter what that looks like in terms of the dramatic process, is still amazing and incredible. That anyone would be saved from their sins, all of us so undeserving, is an amazing thing that we ought to celebrate and ought to meditate on regularly. So, so for me, my story is, again, not, not nearly as dramatic as Saul of Tarsus's story. That process and period of wrestling with who Jesus is and, and coming to understand what it would mean to follow him took place when I was a very small child. I was about six years old, maybe seven years old, it was on a Sunday night, I can remember, in a small church called Gospel Lighthouse, in a little blip on Highway 49, 6.5 miles from Conway Springs, Kansas, this little town called Viola, which was literally nothing but, well, Nelsonville, a couple churches and a few houses. And it was at that place on that night that I was confronted by Jesus, and my life was changed. I'll be honest with you, I don't recall the text of the sermon that evening. I don't recall how the pastor asked us to respond that night. In fact, if I'm really, really honest, I'm not even sure the name of the pastor who was there at that time, and, and my family isn't either. I was asking my grandmother earlier this week, do you remember who was there at the, this particular year? And she's like, eh, no, I don't. I mean, I could look. It's, it's one of these couple pastors. That they weren't, there was some transition there. All I really remember about that night, not even the specific date, has stuck with me. My parents did never thought to write it down. I'll encourage you parents, write that down for your kids. What I do remember that night though was that Jesus confronted me. My heart was moved in a real and personal way at six years old. I was a kid who'd grown up in a religious home. I was doing the things uh, that a religious kid was supposed to be doing. I mean I'm there Sunday night at church, right? Sitting there listening to the pastor preach. And yet that night something was different. That night, I suddenly understood a few really life-changing things. One, Jesus was God, the creator of all things, and he was holy and perfect in all ways, and he had come and died a bloody death on a cross to save everyone who would trust in him. And that night, I realized I was a sinner who had no hope of salvation on my own. I knew that I, I lied to my parents and to others. I knew that I didn't honor God above all else. There were things I probably would've rather been doing that night as we drove those 6.5 miles to Viola. I knew that I was selfish. I knew that I had broken God's rules more times than I could count. And I felt that night very deeply and truly, I was a sinner undeserving a relationship with God if he was the holy God that the Bible said he was. At six years old, I knew all of that. It became very clear to me. And I didn't have any dramatic sins, right? Uh, No murder in my background, no major theft, no jail time for six-year-old Isaiah, right? But I knew in my spirit, somehow the spirit had worked in me to aliven my understanding that I was a sinner and I was every bit undeserving as, as anyone else ever would be. And I needed a savior So at six years old, I was confronted by Jesus that night in that little church in that little town, and I submitted myself to him, my life to him. I wanted to follow him as the Lord, the one in charge of my life. I wanted to obey him and believe in him and trust him to save me because I knew I I couldn't do it myself. Now, that story is not nearly as flashy as Saul of Tarsus' story, right? But that resulting salvation that God gave me that night, the way he changed my life forever from that moment forward— That is amazing and incredible, just as much as it was for Saul. So, what is your story? I want you to think about this. When did you wrestle with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? When was it that Jesus confronted you with your sins? No matter what they were, how big or or small they, they might have seemed in your eyes or in the eyes of people around you, when was that moment where you realized you yourself were a sinner who needed a Savior? And when was that moment that Jesus revealed he was the Savior? that you needed. And you could come to him. You could place your faith and trust in him. If you're a follower of him, if you're truly a Christian, you have to have that moment. Your encounter with Christ may have looked like mine. It may have been at a, a church and in an altar following a, a sermon series. It, maybe your period of wrestling was just for the length of that sermon and, and those few moments of prayer in, in response. Or maybe your story is more gradual. Maybe it was, it was over a longer period of time. You'd heard about Jesus. You knew these things to be true. And you, you kind of mentally, yeah, sure, I, I, I believe that. But then, and then at some point, Jesus became real to you. And you knew you needed to respond to him personally. It wasn't just enough to, to know some things and go do the religious activities. Maybe maybe for you, it wasn't even in a church service. Maybe it was at home. Maybe you were doing something mundane when when this encounter with Jesus happened. That's, that's the way it was for my son, Tobiah. He was at home playing Legos before bed, and we were talking somehow. I think we were building a, a ship, and we were talking about pirates, and he was saying that he knew pirates did bad things like stealing and lying. And, and God, he knew from church, sees all of that, and God's going to judge all that. And it suddenly dawns on Tobiah, well, wait a second, I, I do bad things too. I lie, and I've, I've stolen, and I've done things I shouldn't have done. And he too knew he needed a Savior. And so right there at 8 o'clock at night, January 14th, little five-year-old Tobiah decides, I want to trust Jesus to be my Savior, and I want to follow him. That's his story. Maybe your story is more like us. Maybe it's that. It's more mundane in the process, but the resulting salvation is nonetheless amazing, and and we should celebrate it. Or, Or maybe you're one of the people in here that does have a dramatic conversion story. Maybe not Saul of Tarsus dramatic, right, with the voice from heaven, bright light. But maybe it was through a tragedy, maybe through a loss, maybe through a great success. Maybe you accomplished everything you set out to accomplish and get to the end of it and you realize this isn't what I thought would bring me true happiness. And there Jesus revealed himself to you. Whatever the differences are, we each, if we are one of his people, if we are truly Christian, we have a story. We have that moment with Jesus. And that's amazing and something we should keep in our minds, in our thoughts, regularly. Our salvation stories don't have to be dramatic, but they do have to be personally real in our lives. Listen, listen carefully. No one else's story, no one else's experiences will save you. If you think today that you're a Christian just because you've followed certain religious practices, because everyone around you says that they're a Christian, because your family are, are Christians, because you grew up here in this culture that we've got all around us, because you've gone to church a whole bunch of times in your life, because maybe you've heard a bunch of stories that you'll intellectually accept as true this morning. You'll nod along. Sure, that happened for Saul. Sure, that was uh, uh, the pastor's experience. That was what ha- took place for, for Tobiah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, sure, I believe those things. But if it's all just in your head, it's all just knowledge, and you yourself have never really encountered Jesus personally, never really thought through and developed your own convictions, like deep beliefs about who he is, you've never experienced the living Savior personally in your life, then you're like Saul on the Damascus Road. You may have engaged in religious activities. You may have cultivated external appearances. But if you haven't personally met Jesus, you're spiritually blind and you do not have salvation for your soul if you're not submitting to Jesus as God. Saul did not really know God because he did not follow Jesus. In fact, he was an enemy of God. And that's what all who are apart from faith in Christ are We're all enemies of God unless we have been saved by Christ and trust in Christ and begin to follow Christ. We are enemies of God. And so hear this, apart from personally knowing and following Jesus, you do not truly know God or have salvation. And you need to, be, you need to understand how serious a thing that is. You need to let the weight of that press in on you. Just sitting here this morning is not enough. No matter how many times you've been here, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have this personal experience, encounter, and these real genuine convictions that are yours, not somebody else's, yours about who he is, if you're not following him, then today you need to hear this story and respond as Saul does. Before this point of Jesus showing up on the Damascus road, Saul was a lost sinner who had no hope of salvation on his own. His works, his own merits, his religious zeal would never save him. He would never come to have salvation of his soul. But when Jesus appears, he affects a change in Saul. And so for those three days after Jesus has appeared, Saul begins to get spiritual vision. He's moved from from being blind spiritually, thinking he knows who God is, thinking he's got this all figured out, to realizing that Jesus truly is King of kings, Lord of lords, the God himself who came to save lost sinners. And everything begins to change for Saul. He's given a vision that a man is going to come. One of the men who Saul has come to Damascus to arrest and likely see killed, he's told, this man will come and through him in my name, Jesus's name, I will remove your physical blindness just as I'm giving you spiritual sight today. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Now, we think about that part of the story, and we just go, wow, God, I mean, that's amazing. You're so kind, so, so gracious in what you're doing there. But, but we think that primarily because we are sitting outside the narrative today. If we're in the story, we would have a very different response to God's words to Ananias. In fact, Ananias has the response you and I would have if we were the believer in the story being told what he's being told. I mean, if you've had to flee Jerusalem because there's a man named Saul persecuting the church because, because he oversaw the killing of one of the church leaders whom you, you probably knew, you at least heard of this event. If you've had to flee 135 miles away and God says, I want you to go talk to this man named Saul at this house on the street called Straight, well, you and I would probably respond like Ananias responds. In verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. What's, what's Ananias' reply? Well, it's confusion and uncertainty and, and questioning, right? Does God really have the right man in mind? Are you sure you meant straight street, straight? Not, not one over? Are you sure you meant Saul, not someone else? Nobody else is as zealous and passionate of destroying the Christians as this man Right? Here He's the great persecutor of the church. Ananias says, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done. So Ananias is struggling with the same thing you and I often struggle with. In our pride, in our arrogant ignorance of our own great sinfulness, Ananias thinks Saul is too much of a sinner to be saved. You must have the wrong man, God. Haven't you heard what I've heard about Saul? So so the question is, is Saul a great sinner? Absolutely. Does Saul deserve salvation or healing from God? Not in the least. But neither did Ananias. And the initial response of Ananias shows he misses this. His response betrays the insidious lie that so many of us hold on to at some level in our own hearts. We think somehow we who are in this room, or at least us personally, deserve salvation a little bit more than someone else. I mean, we'd we'd never say we're perfect, of course. And the more biblical of us would say, no, we didn't deserve our salvation at all. But but at some level, deep down in the hidden corners of our heart, what I think is probably true for the majority of people in this room is that we think, yeah, we, we deserve it a little bit more than someone else, though. I mean, it makes a little bit more sense to us that God would save us rather than Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, we're pretty moral compared to him. Our sins and evils aren't nearly as public as his, right? I mean, we may get anger and we may have pride, but that doesn't lead to death and destruction like what his does. So sure, it makes sense that God would save us more than him. On a more local scale, I'm, I'm betting that almost every one of you in this room can think of a person or a family who's somewhere in this community, in this sphere of influence that you have, that deep down in the depths of your heart, maybe the most hidden feelings you have, you think, you know what, I am better than them. And it does make more sense to me that God would save me rather than them. They're pretty messed up. They've got this past. They've got that thing. That's what Ananias thinks about Saul. So notice the next verse and how God responds to him. Verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think God's response is incredibly fascinating, right? Because God isn't interested in discussing it at all with Ananias. He just responds with the command, the same thing he just told him to do, go. God doesn't say, oh, really, Ananias? What have you heard about Saul? I mean, how bad is he, really? I've been a little busy, maybe I missed a few things, you know? God doesn't try to explain it away. Like, nice, you just don't understand Saul's heart. Yes, he's misguided, but, but you see how passionate he is. You know, he's just kind of down the wrong path. We're just going to correct it. What he's done isn't that big of a deal. It was from the right motive, and, and just we got to redirect him. No, there's none of that. God knows exactly who Saul is. He knows all of Saul's evils. He sees them as evils and wrongs. God sees Saul exactly as he is, and God decides, I am going to radically change that man. I am going to save him and transform him, and you, Ananias, are going to go and do what I have said. You are going to be my instrument. God is not interested in the opinion of Saul's worthiness according to Ananias. God's already decided I have chosen him. I will send him. I am going to do things through him as one of my people. You, Ananias, simply do what you are told. And God says that same thing to you and I today, but we don't want to hear that. Because clearly in the Bible, he's given us the command to go and tell other people about Jesus too, right? But so many of us try to sit back And on some level, do what Ananias was doing. We try to weigh out. Who do we think it is that deserves salvation? Are we sure we want to talk to that person? Let's kind of filter their past and their worthiness through whatever grid it is we've built up in our minds. Maybe they're too far evil. They're too far gone for God to reach. So I'm off the hook. I don't have to share with them because of how bad they are. God would say to us what he says to Ananias. Go. Go and do what I have said. This, this, this plan, this mission of sharing who Jesus is is for all believers. Every single one of us equally. We see that in the rest of the statement because God tells Ananias, Saul himself is going to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And really that's what God says of every person he saves. You and I equally are chosen instruments of his to carry his name. The only difference is to who? Not that the mission applies only to some people. It's who is he sending us to? For Saul, the who is Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. That's the people God has created and sent Saul to witness to. The who, for most of us in this room, are going to be neighbors and colleagues and family members who live around us in our communities. But that's not exclusive because so many of us have opportunities to go beyond that that we could take if we would simply seize upon them. If we would simply hear God say, go, and we would obey. I mean, there's connections in this room to places all over the world, from England to the United Arab Emirates to Guatemala to Indonesia to places in Africa. We have connections all around the world that we could leverage if we were just simply faithful and intentional to do so. And there's opportunities for us here without going anywhere else to meet people from all over the world, right? There's ways for us to get connected in the communities. We could go on a college campus like Elizabeth and and Edu, and they get to, like I said, I mean, people from more nations than he can count are coming right there. You don't have to go anywhere. They just show up, and he gets a chance to tell them about Jesus. We could do those same type of things. We could go get involved in community activities and, and other things that are taking place that bring people who are not like us Into relationship with us, and we could tell them about Jesus. But most of us are simply not obeying the command to go and tell others about Jesus. There's so many opportunities for us to carry out this calling, but far too many of us do what Ananias did. We either try to filter out who do we think is worthy of salvation, and and if they're they're pretty close, then okay, maybe we'll we'll go talk to them, or we simply ignore this command altogether. And we think our lives on this earth are meant to be vacations rather than assignments as ambassadors of the king. So let's wrap up this morning with just the last few verses of Saul's story of salvation here. Verse 17, so Ananias departed. Once God says, no, go, <laughs> no more debate, simply obey, Ananias does. He departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul, the persecutor of the church the one who had come to Damascus to eradicate all who proclaimed Jesus is Lord and who worshipped him as God. This Saul was healed by one of the men he had come to arrest in the name of Jesus whom he had come to try and eradicate. I mean, Saul's physical blindness is healed here, which is incredible, but more importantly, his spiritual blindness was too. That was the result of this process of wrestling for Saul. This now becomes Saul's story, a story of salvation. Saul rose up and no longer needed to ponder, who is Jesus really? He knew. Saul no longer had to think how it would look to respond to Jesus. He committed in that moment to following him as his Savior and God. Saul, his mission in life was no longer, I'm going to destroy the followers of the way, what the Christians called themselves at this time, the disciples of Jesus. Saul gets baptized publicly to become one of them. And it's also incredible. It's all so amazing. And yet, because it's a familiar story, applying it to our own lives can be something we often overlook. Hear this. God would save Saul, a sinner so great, with sins far greater than our past, right? In a way that's that seems so amazing compared to our own stories. Yet, when we look at this story, what we should realize is that since God would save Saul, a sinner this great, you and I should be motivated to faith and trust in God and living out the mission that he has given to us. Knowing Saul's story and reflecting on our own stories of salvation should motivate and challenge us. It should not be something we can just sit back and go, interesting, interesting, okay, and go home and live like we have been living. It should do something in us. It should empower us and, and, and uh, motivate us to go out of here and say, there's this person in my life who needs Jesus, and I will obey God's word. Go. I will do what he has said for me to do. I mean, if Saul's not a lost cause then that means the most hardened sinner that you know, the person who may have rejected Jesus entirely up to this point in their lives, or the person who is walking in abject rebellion to God and his word, they are not a lost cause either. Jesus can confront and convert any sinner whom he chooses, so don't give up hope. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop sharing the gospel message with them. It's so important for us to understand this and begin to live like this in this broken and deteriorating world that we have. Do not forget, Christians, you are ambassadors of the kingdom of light here for a purpose. We're assigned to live and work on a mission here, to proclaim the good news, to reveal the power and the work and the need to submit to Jesus, to all the lost and rebellious sinners that we may have around us in our sphere of influence. This is why God has put you here. And you need to know there are none too far gone for him. None who are too hardened for him to change. None whose sins make them unable to be redeemed by Jesus, the true light of salvation. He is far more powerful than any sin, far more powerful than any sinner. He is the God who saves. The one who saved Saul and the one who saved so many of us in this room Today, Jesus sees the full story for each of us. And he's writing stories of salvation that you and I are not called to to determine if someone's worthy of having that story, that you and I are called to play the part of going and obeying, just like Ananias. Knowing Saul's story and reflecting on our own story of salvation should motivate and challenge us. So as the worship team comes this morning, I want us to think carefully and humbly about our own lives. Reflect on your story of salvation this morning. You have heard how God saved Saul, this great, great sinner. None are too far gone for him. And if you yourself are a Christian, you've experienced this amazing gift of salvation at work in your life too. Think of that. And if this morning you realize you've never had that story, you've never had that moment, you've never actually encountered the living Christ, then today is the day to do that. Today, this offer of salvation, this light of salvation is here. And you today, no matter how many times you've been in the church, no matter how many times you've, you've told someone that you are a Christian, if that's not true in your heart, then today's the day to submit to him, to make that true. So we're going to respond in these few moments here. And what I want us to do is if we're Christians to to resolve, to be motivated, that we'll be like Ananias. We will go. We will do what we've been told. And if we don't have this story of salvation that's true and personal in our lives, then today we would respond and receive salvation from the Lord. The altars are open, I'd love to pray with you. Elizabeth and, and ye would love to pray with you too if you want to pray with them. But, but respond this morning over these next few moments. As the team plays and sings, this is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God before we walk out of this place. May He challenge us and motivate us, and may we leave this place faithful and obedient to Him. Let's respond.